This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to the New Books Network. Confounding, exhilarating, and contagious. Emotions matter, and so does applying emotional intelligence. Welcome to Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight, the podcast where emotions rule. Whatever the topic, how do hearts and minds collide? Find out with your host, a college professor turned globetrotting EQ entrepreneur. His mission? Each week, Dan joins prominent authors in decoding how emotions drive outcomes and make people tick. Now, on to the show. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me for the 38th episode of my podcast, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. The series appears here on the New Books Network, which has as its motto, sharing knowledge so people can thrive. Today's topic is why we should read Faulkner now. I'm joined by Michael Gora. He's the author of The Saddest Words, William Faulkner's Civil War. The publisher is Live Right Publishing, a division of W.W. Norton and Company. The author of Portrait of a Novel, a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize, Michael is the Mary Augusta Jordan Professor of English Language and Literature at Smith College and the editor of the Norton Critical Editions of As I Lay Dying and The Sound and the Fury. Welcome to the show, Michael. Thank you for having me, Dan. Absolutely. Looking forward to it. So I'm curious about the book's title. Can you maybe talk about that in part of giving us a brief introductory sense of this book? Sure, of course. Um, so the title is The Saddest Words, and there are two of them. Uh, the words are was and again. And they come, uh, they're, they're used in The Sound and the Fury, in the second part of that novel, which is a dramatic monologue in the first-person voice of a character named Quentin Compson. He's a boy from Mississippi. He's a freshman at Harvard. And at the end of his, at the end of his monologue, he's going to commit suicide. Um, what he's doing in that monologue is he's remembering his earlier life as he goes around his day, his day in Cambridge. He's remembering his earlier life and some conversations he's had with his father earlier that summer when, and the conversations have been about his sister, Caddy, who is uh, pregnant, promiscuous, marrying somebody who's not the father of her child. And he's talking to his father and, and, and his father says, essentially, you're going to get over this. You're not, this isn't always going to trouble you the way it does now. And Quentin won't have any of that. He thinks that this is permanent, that the, the anguish, the agony he's going through, the sense of lost family honor he's going through, that's going to be forever. And his father then says, was the saddest word of all. Because was, when you can think of something as was, well, it means it's in the past. You have started to get over it. It's no longer as present to you. It's not is. So that's one word. But at another point in his monologue, Quentin thinks to himself, no, was isn't the saddest word. Again, that's the saddest word. Again, sadder than was, saddest of all. 
Because what again means, that word again, is that things repeat themselves. They go on happening. They, you might think you've gotten over it, and then boom, it's back. Trauma returns. Uh, the present or that past that seems to you so present keeps on replaying itself for you. And part of my argument is that, that this is what, for a writer like Faulkner, uh, for an American writer, as a writer from the American South in the early years of the 20th century, that's what the Civil War was. It was, again, something that you had been taught, that you'd absorbed, that you believed was not fully over, who's, that you still felt the pain of that loss as something ongoing, something present. And you were encouraged to do that. That's what your, your textbooks told you to do. The lost cause that was somehow still alive. And, and Faulkner, Faulkner was troubled by that. He, he didn't really believe it. He didn't believe in slavery. He didn't believe in the Confederacy. But he nevertheless absorbed that, that worldview growing up as a boy in Mississippi. Sure. No, I think that's fascinating stuff. I admit when I was reading your book, I thought back to a Delmore Schwartz quote that hasn't been in my mind recently until now, which is, the past is inevitable. Right. Um, yeah. Because that's such a presence in your book. Now, you mentioned several times uh, that Faulkner, you know, you used the phrase, a wound of the mind. I'm not sure which novel that's in or if that's your own words. You also said Faulkner believed in failure. Uh, can you maybe elucidate on that? Yeah. Well, Again, this goes back to the sound of the fury. Um, uh, the wound of the mind is 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 my phrase. In fact, and I'm I'm borrowing it actually from from Freudian uh, analysis. Um, Faulkner believed in failure in that he'd grown up in a in a world in which not a lot of people were succeeding. His father had failed in a number of businesses. He himself hadn't finished high school. Uh, he'd had no profession. Uh, he was regarded as a, as a good for nothing by people in his extended family. Well, when he was writing The Sound of the Fury, he'd published two novels, and then he had another novel rejected, a book on which he's got a great deal of, a great deal of hope. It's called Flags in the Dust, and uh, it, it was rejected. His publisher said, you shouldn't even try to publish this anywhere else. It'll destroy what little reputation you have. Um, I think it's actually a marvelous novel. It was published in an abridged form um, some months later, uh, and now now we do read the the original version. Um, but he felt like he was a failure as a writer, and and yet in failure he found a set of creative possibilities. He then said to himself, "Okay, well I've, I'm I'm not going to be published. Let's play and let's go for broke." So he started to tell this impossible story about a, a family and he thought he would tell the first part he would tell the story over and over again he first told it from the point of view of quentin compson's younger brother benji who's mentally impaired who can't speak and who can't tell the difference between past and present so faulkner told told this the family history of the sister's pregnancy and so on uh from benji's point of view and then he said no 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 that's not working so he told it from quentin's point of view um, from the point of view of the suicide. Uh, and he said, no, 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 that's not working. Um, he told it from the point of view of a third brother who is uh, coldly irrational and just as crazy as the others, though, though actually. <laughs> here. 
Um, the person he didn't tell it from, the point of view he didn't choose to tell it from, was that of the sister. Um, he let her stay off the page as this this object of desire, this this figure who never actually appears, but whom the three brothers can't stop thinking of. But he told the story three times, and, and he said none of them are really working. So I'll try it. I'll let Faulkner do it. He said. Uh, I'll let Faulkner do it. And what he did in the last section of the novel was to retell the story from in the third person, in an omniscient third person, but concentrating on the lives of the family's black servants, um, and especially on, on their, their cook, Dilsey Gibson, who's been with them for many, many years, this is set in 1928. Um, and then he said, okay, well, that's enough. Uh, he threw up his hands and said, it's, it's, that's it. It's, it's failed. But each time I failed a little better. <laughs> well, I'm glad for one that he went, uh, went for broke, so to speak, because it's one of my favorite novels. Yeah. You, you mentioned um, that there was a civil war within Faulkner himself. Right. Uh, I'm also curious about that comic. Can you, you tease that out a bit more for us? Sure. Well, having killed Quentin Compson off in The Sound of the Fury, Faulkner couldn't quite let him alone. And uh, Faulkner really could never let any story or any of his characters alone. The, the one thing that people, well, people know two things about him. One is that his books are difficult, and they are. The other thing is that he set just about all his fiction in the same uh, imaginary county in Mississippi, which is modeled on his own Lafayette County in the northern part of the state. And that he tended to draw on the same characters over and over again. You know, he'd start a story in one book and finish it in another. He'd come up with a different anecdote about a particular set of characters that he wanted you to know. So he, he you know, eight years after The Sound of the Fury, he went back to Quentin Compson, pushes the narrative back six months. It's December in 1910, um, uh, 1909. The boy's going to kill himself six months further on, but he's not dead yet. And what Faulkner does is to imagine Quentin as being asked over and over again at Harvard, being asked to tell about the South. You get all these Yankees saying, Yankees like me, saying, tell about the South. What's it like there? What do people, what do, people do there? What, how, do they, how do they live there? And he even says, why do they live at all? And what Quentin then does is he tells a story. Since he's been telling the story all fall, but there's one night on which he sits down with his roommate, who's a Canadian, and they tell the story again and they swap it back and forth. And it's a story, it's a story about slavery. It's a story that goes back to the earliest days of the settlement of, of Faulkner's imaginary county, a place he called Yaknapatofa County, it's a word my students can never pronounce. <laughs> like half our first class on Faulkner, let's get it, okay, say it with me, Yaknapatofa. Um, uh, he tells a story about the early settlement of Yaknapatofa, about um, the coming of the war, about a one plantation family and the way they're, they first make a great fortune, and then the past catches up with them. And I'm not going to say in just what form the past catches up with them, because because that's part of the genius of the book is it keeps you it keeps you guessing. Except that it does have to do with sex. Uh, 
the past catching up with you in Faulkner almost always has to do with sex in some way. Um, the past catches up with them, and Faulkner takes this story as indicative of the history of the South, uh, or Quentin takes it as indicative of the history of the South. He finishes the story, and on the last page of the book, his roommate says, okay, now tell me one thing more. Just why do you hate the South? Just why do you hate it so much? And Quentin says, I don't. I don't hate it. I don't hate it. I don't hate it. And you sense this voice rising, and you know, and and you you don't believe what he's saying. That, that there's a part of him that loves that place, but a part of him that also hates it. And Faulkner, Faulkner said in interviews, he said, "Well, that's the character. That's not me." Other places, he came a little more clean and said, "You know, admitted, yeah, there there are parts. There are parts I love. There are parts I hate. And what he hates above all is the way in which his people." white Southerners have treated the black Southerners they live with and on whom they depend. Um, so, so there, there's, there's part of him that, you know, there's a part of him that is, is he's the descendant of slave owners. He, you know, he accepted in many ways, the sort of codes of manners and the, the hierarchy uh, that he'd inherited and that he, he lived in. He also knew it was deeply and profoundly unjust. Uh, and I think he was, uh, I think he was always troubled by that, by that contradiction. It's a contradiction in himself as much as it is in the society around him. Um, so that, 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 that's part of the civil war in him. Okay. I, I'm also curious, and I don't want to spend too much time on, on the, the man himself necessarily, but uh, many times there are at least passing references to the fact, if I'm not mistaken, that Faulkner was an alcoholic. Yeah. Uh, how does that play into his writing style into into his novels anything you might want to say on that front yeah you know um Faulkner was not only an alcoholic he was a third generation alcoholic uh-huh. uh his grandfather his paternal grandfather his father actually he married an alcoholic as well his wife Estelle was an alcoholic um uh there was a code of drinking in in his world um what nobody has ever really defined fully, I think, is the degree to which Faulkner was drinking while he was writing. I don't think he was the sort of person who had a glass by him when he was at the typewriter. He was a binge drinker when he was done. Um, when, he was, when he was finished with a book, he might go on a bender. Um, and then sometimes he, he, and he, he knew when he had to dry out as well. Um, there was a particular drying out facility in the northern northern Mississippi. It's where he died, in fact, in 1960, early 1962. Um, uh, he, w- he would check himself in there and dry out. Um, he was a binge drinker. He um, Sometimes he would have accidents from drinking. There's one moment, I, f- I forget what year it is, when he, he, was vi- he was visiting his publishers in New York and passed out and fell against a steam pipe and lay there for an hour or so and had to be hospitalized. Wow after that. Um, uh, but, you know, I don't think he was drinking as he wrote. End of the day, a little bit, perhaps, when the books were done then. Um, uh, he, um, it did take a toll on him over time, though. It really did take a toll on him over time, that his, his constitution, it weakened his constitution. Um, he died of a heart attack, which at 64, or 65, which he 
probably was helped along by the alcoholism. Um, he was prone to falls of one kind or another when he, as he got older, um, he insisted on riding horses and rode them rather foolhardily and often fell off. Um, it, it certainly, it certainly took a toll and you could argue in fact that really all the great Faulkner books are, they're finished by the time he's 45. He's got another 20 years, but none of the books he wrote after Go Down Moses, to my mind, um, are comparable in, in their scope and quality to, uh, to the earlier ones. It's not to say they're not fun. They, they are fun. They're engaging. They fill in pieces of, uh, of the mythology of the world he's created in Octopatofi. But the, the later half dozen books are not on the same order as the books he wrote between, say, 1928 and 1942. Yeah, no, it was a tremendous span. I, I admit that after I finished the book and was reflecting on the title and this civil war within Faulkner, I, I went to, online to Google and I looked up photographs of Faulkner because I'm a facial coder, which means that professionally I study people's facial muscle movements to understand the emotions that they show, including characteristic emotions. And in Faulkner's case, uh, the corners of his mouth turned down sign of sadness. His uh, eyes rarely meet the camera. They tend to be down. Uh, Very slight smile. Otherwise, really no smiles in the photographs I happen to look at. And his eyebrow arches a bit in a sign of surprise and fear. So one one gets a sense of a man who's uh, certainly not elated. Uh, There is some determination on his face in terms of some anger. Uh, But there is a downcast quality uh, to him without doubt. Going back to go ahead. You want to say something there? That I, I, that that is fascinating. Do, does that increase over the course of his life, or is that consistent from photographs that say were taken in the nineteen twenties? Um, I didn't, you know, check the, the chronology the way they were pre- presented to me on Google. I couldn't really you know, do that readily. Um, you know, I could kind of guess at his age. I would say it was fairly consistent uh, from the ones that I looked at. I could go back. I'd be fascinated, in fact, to go back and, and look more. Uh, another alcoholic writer, F. Scott Fitzgerald from my neck of the woods, Minnesota, uh, also had problems with sadness. Uh, but increasingly, in his case, he was actually fairly upbeat initially. Yeah. That, 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 you know, uh, so this is, this is really just gossip. But, but um I was in Mississippi. I was I was visiting uh, I was visiting Oxford where Faulkner had lived, and uh, there was a retired faculty member at the University of Mississippi there who took me to visit Faulkner's grave, and he said that he had been talking with I think it was maybe Faulkner's son-in-law or a nephew or something. And he said, you know, this he could tell he'd hardly ever had a happy day in his life. Yeah, you know, say Dave's sort of unalloyed happiness. That, that's a sort of you know biographical thing you can't really testify to, um, but but um, but that fits with that 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 what, what you're saying about reading the face. Um, yeah, well, that, it's, that is, it's 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 rich territory. That is totally fascinating to me. So, so um, you know, I have not actually read Absalom, Absalom. I, I have read As I Lay Dying, love it. Sound the Fury, one of my favorite novels. I've read Light in August. I've read Barn Burning and other short stories. But you say in, in the book that your mind, for your money, Absalom, Absalom is right up there with another of my favorite books, The Golden Bull by Henry James and Herman, Herman Melville's Moby Dick. Is it the difficulty of what they dare to take on? Is it the style? What is it that makes 
that novel of his, uh, Faulkner's A Cut Above Sound of the Fury, which, you know, is to my mind certainly a great novel. Right. Well, you know, it's 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 the difficulty. It's the difficulty, it's the scope of what they take on. Um, you know, The Sound of the Fury is is a is a magnificent book. It's it's a magnificent book. Um I think it gains in historical resonance from being put up against the books that Faulkner wrote afterwards. That is, there are things in The Sound of the Fury about the past, about race, uh, about history, that are, as it were, almost latent in that novel. They're latent in that, that they're, they're lying out there waiting to be given meaning, and the later books give them meaning. And I think Absalom Absalom certainly does that. You, you read Absalom Absalom and go back to The Sound of the Fury, and you'll, you'll see things there in that earlier book you wouldn't have seen without it. Now, it is... Absalom Absalom is, I think, more difficult, not on a sentence by sentence level. Um, there's not quite the same experimentation with subjective consciousness that there is in The Sound and the Fury, although some of its sentences are brutally long and difficult. But I think it's, I think it's conceptually more difficult. It's, it's more demanding. It keeps um, uh, Absalom, uh, Sound and the Fury is in many places very funny. Um, there's not much humor in, in Absalom, Absalom. Um, you, it, it keeps you at a sustained rhetorical high pitch for 300 pages, um, teetering right on the edge of falling over into too much. Um, and in that, in that sense, it's, it's, uh, he called Zile dying a tour de force, but as Absalom, Absalom is, every bit as much of a tour de force. It is, it's a sustained exercise, and, and I guess I call it the sublime. Uh, it's a scary book to read. It feels like you've been knocked over the head. Your mind has been blasted open. Moby Dick does that too in places. The Golden Bowl does. The Golden Bowl is, is a book that you, James's Golden Bowl, you you have to be. Um, that's a book to read in the morning uh, when you're at your <laughs> when, when you're at your most alert. Um, uh, and you know the, the the sound of the fury will will wound you. Um, nobody's going to be entirely happy when they read that book. But um, but as I, as I say in my own book, that you, when you read it, you realize this is this is why we do read to get books like this. So, so with Absalom, Absalom, and again, I, you know, I haven't read the book, but from your, you know, many points of discussion of it within your book, um, I gather that it's about a planter's sexual abuse of his slaves. And I must say, although it didn't catch my attention earlier in life, now the question of, uh, you know, mixed race, a miscegenation, a term that's been used in the past, yeah. uh, the, the uh, Mississippi Code about what constitutes being a white person. All of these things start to well up, and and, and the sexual abuse to me uh, is daring for the time he wrote it. It is uh, so central to you know all the racial issues that still are with us today. What more could you you say about that issue and, and how that helps give the book the punch that it does? Yeah, if you if you could see me, I was nodding along as you spoke. Um, you're right that these are not issues that uh, fiction in Faulkner's day dealt with comfortably or indeed at all. Um, 
It's not something you're going to find in Gone with the Wind, which was published the very same year. Um, uh, but it is, yes, about, among other things, about the planter's sexual abuse of his slaves, about the children he fathered on his slaves, um, about what defines a white person legally, as well as in the minds of those, the, the, those around you. Um, all these things that, as, as you say, are indeed very much present with us now. Um, you know, when, when we were in school, people didn't want to admit that uh, what we all know now to be the truth about Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings. Um, uh, we're more willing to look at those things now. Now, I, another thing I would say is that, uh, very curiously, uh, in the early days of Faulkner criticism, uh, in the 50s and 60s, nobody really paid much attention to those issues as well when they read Absalom, Absalom. Um, that seemed, and that's part of the way criticism worked then. People concentrated on, on the formal aspects of the novel, on the various ways in which our knowledge of the past comes to us looking at moments of conflicting testimony in the novel because the novel is made up of different characters telling their versions of the past. Um, they asked, well, what warrant do we have for believing uh, the stories we're told about this planter, Thomas Sutpen, and his sexual history? Well, it's just one character's word. Um, there's no, you know, quote, objectivity there. Um, they didn't really look very, critics then really didn't look very closely at what the book was saying about the South at its historical residence. And now, of course, even, even as we're still aware of all those complicated narratological issues, we're much more willing uh, to, look at, to, to look at that thematic burden, um, to ask what, what the novel's about. Why might Quentin hate the South so much? Why might this be the story he picks? to tell what the South is like to Northerners, a story of race and slavery and sexual exploitation and property. Um, uh, and uh, yeah, it is not something people wanted to, wanted to talk about very much in the 1930s. You know, the 1930s, Jim Crow is still going strong in the South, there is the myth of the lost cause is still going strong. There is an attempt by a lot of historians to paint slavery as a more or less benign institution. You know, one we're happy to be, to see is over, but it was more or less benign. It was sort of like an English country house with the servants gathered around, and servants was the word that they used to refer to slaves. Um, it's the word they used in slavery period itself, but they kept on being used. Um, so that th this was not something that people in Faulkner's Mississippi wanted to hear about. And uh, a lot of libraries in Mississippi wouldn't put Faulkner in there uh, because he told too many uncomfortable truths. They thought he was somebody, his, even his uncle said that he was writing dirty books to sell the Yankees. <laughs> uh, you know. Uh, it was a bold book. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. So before we run out of time here, there's at least one, maybe two more questions I want to get to. One is you make reference to Edmund Wilson's Patriotic Gore, uh, which is, a again, a book I have not read, but intend to now that I've read your book because um, you bring it up. How do you think your book owes maybe some debt to that? How does it build on that book? I mean, I know yours is specifically to Faulkner, right. but obviously both touch on the Civil War. Well, Ed, what will, Edmund Wilson's Patriotic Gore is, is a, a book published in the early 1960s, on the literature of the Civil War, um, or rather what we'd call the writing that came out of the Civil War, because part of what Wilson says is the Civil War was not, did not produce great novels or poems, not in, the, uh, not in the generations immediately following the war. I mean, I think it clearly it produced a great novel in Absalom, Absalom, but that's 60, 70 years later. There's no war and peace about the Civil War. There's no, there's no great novelist who fought in the Civil War. So what Wilson does is say, well, what writing did come out of the war? And he looks at diaries and memoirs and letters. He looks at some poems which were popular in this post-Civil War period, uh, even if they're not much read now. He looks at oratory speeches. He looks a lot at Lincoln. He looks at Grant's memoirs. He brought attention to two significant works that that um, really are not part of the canon of 19th century literature. One is is indeed those memoirs of Grant's, which were wildly popular when they were published and then more or less forgotten about. And then the diary of the upper class uh, South Carolina woman, uh, Mary Chestnut, who's husband and a United States senator and who left a record of, of life in the upper reaches of the Confederacy. That is, is wonderfully detailed. And Wilson said, you know, this, this book really is great literature. So when I began my book, I thought, well, I'm going to try to update Edmund Wilson. I'm going to try to take on all the literature about the Civil War that's been produced since and bring him up to date. And uh, I, after a little while, I took a deep swallow. I thought, well, <laughs> Um, but I can take a writer I already do know and whose work I love, uh, Faulkner, and see what he has to say about the war. I can see what he has to say about the war and what the war can tell us about him. I can use them to read each other. Um, and in doing so also to say some things about our own moment. Sure. So my last question then, and we probably could take it in half an hour just on this question alone, I realize, but um, speaking of the war, to me, as I read through your book, Nathan Bedford Forrest stands out so much more than Robert E. Lee. What does that say about Faulkner's take on the Civil War? Well, you're right that, that Forrest is a figure for Faulkner in a way that Lee is not. Lee is just a name in Faulkner. Forrest is a presence. Now, that's partly geographical. Um, Faulkner's from Mississippi. Forrest had been a Memphis slave trader before the war, and most of his fighting, was, well, just about all his fighting, was really done in, in Tennessee and Mississippi. He's the great local um, Confederate military leader. Um, and some of his battles were fought within 50 miles of, of Faulkner's, Faulkner's home. Uh, Lee is this, is this figure off stage. Forrest is somebody who was known in Faulkner's world. 
The other thing to say, though, is that Forrest was, in essence, a war criminal. Yes. Who let his men uh, slaughter black Union soldiers who'd surrendered. Who was, Fort Pillow, yeah. Who was a slave trader, who was one of the early leaders of the KKK. Um, that Forrest is somebody in whom we see, I guess I'll say, in whom we see the Confederacy naked without the, the veneer of good manners and gentlemanly breeding and education and courtliness that you find in Robert E. Lee. And that, that, that is part of what made the image of the Confederacy palatable to uh, later generations of people, both North and South. You embody it in Lee. Um, who seems in many ways so much like an English gentleman. Uh, and you begin to, you know, it starts to seem palatable. You look at Forrest. I don't know if this is what Faulkner is doing consciously, but I think it is the effect of thinking about Forrest. You look at Forrest and you, and you see the racism and the, the power relations and the property relations. You see that naked. Um, and if you, there, there some of the stories in which Faulkner brings Forrest on stage, um, almost as a folk hero, are pretty unpalatable. Uh, the more you know about Forrest, the less you're going to put up with that. Yeah, no, I, I thought the Forrest's role in the Civil War and the nakedness that Faulkner goes after that makes him a great writer uh, really fit together. Um, yeah. So we, we've run out of time, but I want to thank you so much, Michael. This has been absolutely fascinating. Uh, I want to thank you for being my guest. This is Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. This is episode number 38, Why We Should Read Faulkner Now. My guest, Michael Gora, he's the author of The Saddest Words, William Faulkner's Civil War. You can find more information about this episode by going to my latest blog posting at httpsemotionswizard.com. If you've enjoyed today's show, please give it a rating or review on iTunes. To check out other episodes of my podcast, you can go to my company's website at the obligatory three W's and sensorylogic.com. Finally, I'd like to conclude every episode with an appropriate epigram. In light of today's topic, I've chosen a quote from Shelby Foote, who said, The Civil War defined us as what we are, and it opened us up to being what we became, good and bad things. It was the crossroads of our being, and it was a hell of a crossroads. Until next time, be kind and stay safe. Mm -hmm.